Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, your grace to us uh, in your church, in one another. Thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy together. Thank you that we enjoy that together in Christ and around your word. And so we pray that your spirit would um, open our eyes, illuminate your scriptures to us, help us to see clearly and um, consider how these things um, apply to our own lives and that you would use them um, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are embarking on the next to last of our week, next to the last, the sixth of seven weeks in Job. So turn to Job chapter 38, the moment perhaps we've all been waiting for. Um, As we've perhaps all been wondering, will God ever respond to Job? That's certainly what Job, I think, has been wondering. Will God ever respond? Um, And this week, we'll look at God's first speech. God effectively has two different speeches that He responds to Job with. First of all, in chapter 38 and 39, which we'll do this week, and then next week, chapter 40 and 41, and then we'll also cover the little epilogue in chapter 42 next week. Um, But let's dive in. Because even though it's only two chapters, I fear that I may have, my notes might be too long today. Um, Job chapter 38, just the first three verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Now, we understand that for a long time, Job has been looking for a fight. He's been wanting to bring God to court, as it were, because Job believes he's been treated unfairly. He's been treated unjustly. And so he's trying to um, put God on the defensive, to get God to defend himself for the way he's treated Job. Now, when God finally begins to speak, he immediately turns the tables, and God goes on the offensive. Um, We realize that God is, in fact, up for a fight, only it's not going to be a calm courtroom scene. No, he comes to Job in a whirlwind. Now, we shouldn't overinterpret that and think that this whirlwind is in some way judgment on Job. It's not that Job is at risk of being thrown down or thrown about by this wind. But really, the, the word could also be translated storm or tempest. It's not uncommon in the Old Testament when God reveals himself in a theophany that this is accompanied by um, powerful physical phenomena, whether it's a storm or even an earthquake, lightning, thunder, or fire. This is the way oftentimes God reveals himself in his glory. And so he speaks out of this whirlwind, and as I said, God is going on the offensive, Job will be on the defensive. And the nature of this battle is not physical, but it is in many ways a test of strength. That is, whose words are the strongest? Whose ideas or explanations for what has happened to Job the strongest? Who has the most correct explanations for what has happened to Job? So God begins, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? What is God asking Job here? Well, the word counsel, let's think about that. What does this mean? 
Uh, one commentator, John Hartley, says uh, that God's counsel is the wisdom that permeates His creative acts and guides His governance of the universe. We see this word used elsewhere in the Old Testament. A couple of examples from Jeremiah 32 where it says, the Lord of hosts is His name, great in counsel and mighty indeed. As well as in Isaiah 46, perhaps more familiar to us, um, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. So God's counsel. Really, I think another way to think about it is this is God's plan, His design, His grand design for how the universe should be structured and managed. Um, This is what God's counsel is. And by asking this question in verse 2, God is saying that Job has been darkening God's counsel. He's been darkening God's plan or God's design. Now, how has Job done this? How does someone even darken something? Well, I thought about this. Have you ever sat in a chair next to a window reading a book? For this illustration to work, it has to be a real book not a book with a screen that glows. You're sitting there reading, and you read throughout the afternoon and into the evening. The sun begins to set. It's getting progressively darker. As you're reading, eventually you're going to have to turn the lamp on because you're not going to be able to see the words on the page. The words have been darkened. They've been obscured. They no longer are intelligible. This is what God, Job has been doing to God's plan. He's been obscuring God's plan. David Kleins says, Job has been preventing God's intentions from becoming apparent. All of these things that Job has been saying throughout the dialogue has been obscuring God's purpose. And how has Job been doing this? How has he been obscuring God's design? Well, God says that it's by words without knowledge. So all of Job's words, and there's been a lot of them throughout the dialogue, all of his words have been lacking in something, and they've actually been lacking in knowledge. Perhaps even knowledge has been absent from them entirely. And this is interesting because we might have expected, if we think about the way that the book of Job stands in the wisdom tradition of the Scriptures, especially as we saw in the hymn to wisdom in chapter 28 a few weeks ago, We might have expected that when God comes and finally speaks to Job, we might have expected that God would have identified a wisdom problem in Job. But that's not what he does. God is not calling out Job for being lacking in wisdom. He's identifying a knowledge problem. Job is lacking in knowledge. And there's a difference there. I mean, as we saw in Job chapter 28, uh, wisdom was described as fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. Throughout all of the, or these two speeches of God in chapter 38 through 41, God never tells Job that he should have been more wise or that he should actually be fearing God more so or that he should be turning away from evil even more so. It's not a wisdom problem 
that God is identifying. It's a knowledge problem. So how is God going to address this knowledge problem that Job has? Well, first of all, Job had better gird up his loins like a man. Now, what is God telling Job to do? Well, a man of antiquity in Job's day, he wore a robe. So to gird the loins is to take the skirt of the robe and tuck it up into your belt. If a man was going to do strenuous activity or labor, he would take the bottom part of his robe, put it up in his belt so that he could move around unhindered. This would have also been the case if a man was going to be wrestling or fighting someone. And so God is telling Job, you need to get ready for a fight, or at least, as Klein says, get ready to be attacked. And God's attack will come in the form of questions. He says, I will ask you, and you instruct me. In chapter 38 and 39, um, God will ask Job maybe about 45 different questions. We'll look at most of them today. And as we look at these questions that God will be asking Job, think about some of these questions in our own mind as we're looking at this. What are these questions that God asks? What do they have to do with Job's suffering? What do these questions have to do with Job's demand for vindication? Do these questions that God will ask have anything to do with justice? Which is, of course, what Job has been seeking. And then what about the tone? As God is peppering Job with these questions, does it sound like God is being gracious or kind or not? So what's going to happen in chapter 38 is God is going to take Job on this tour of the cosmos. First of all, looking at the way he is structured and the way he maintains his creation. And then in chapter 39, we'll have a carnival of the animals. God will take Job on this parade or bring these animals, as it were, a parade in front of Job to see what Job might need to learn. I mean, of all things, here's a man that's suffering. Why in the world did Job need to learn about animals? It's interesting, right? Let's keep going. Verses 4 through 7 of chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now immediately, you're tempted to say, well, that's not fair. How in the world could Job cope with these questions? Where were you? when I laid the foundation of the earth. If this was in a courtroom setting, you can imagine perhaps Job's attorney saying, I object, this has nothing to do with what Job has been saying. But nevertheless, the only answer Job could give to this question is, well, where was I when you created the world? Well, I was nowhere. I hadn't been born yet. And I think we all intuitively know that's exactly God's point. Job wasn't around and God created the world. So this first question puts Job in his place. God is the creator, and Job is clearly a creature. Now, spoiler alert. I'll give any one of you permission to get up and leave after I say this, and it's almost as if we could be done. Because I think that God effectively rests his case with his opening argument. 
Because ultimately, God is saying to Job, you are not competent to raise any questions about the way the world is ordered. That's what he's saying. You are not competent to raise any questions about the way the world is ordered. Why not? Why is Job not competent to do this? David Klein says this, quote, Having not been present at the world's creation and seen its making for himself, Job cannot possibly understand the purposes and designs that God has built into it, end quote. End of story. Let's pray and be dismissed. Case closed, right? I mean, as much as I think that is essentially the case, I mean, we know God's going to win, as it were, but he continues to offer these supporting arguments, even though he's already kind of immediately revealed that he's putting Job in his place. He continues to talk about the way that he's created the world, and he does it with the metaphor of building. In fact, it seems that God reveals himself to have been the original design-build contractor. Look at verse 5. Who set its measurements? Who stretched the line on it? God is saying, well, I set its measurements. God was the original architect of the world. He was also the original surveyor, stretching the line on it, determining its meets and bounds and that it would be built according to his plan. Verse 6, on what were its bases sunk? He was also the world's first structural engineer, knowing what was required for the earth to be founded and upheld and sustained. And who laid its cornerstone? God himself was the builder. He was all of these things. He laid the cornerstone of the world. And we realize this, of course, is a metaphor. He's describing creation as if he were building a building. And the word cornerstone might actually be better understood as capstone, as in the last stone that the mason puts in place. Why is that? Well, verse 7, it describes this wonderful celebration that takes place when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It would appear that this is some sort of cosmic topping out party, cosmic grand opening of the finished building of creation. And so what is God's point? The point is that God's knowledge of the world is complete because he's the one that designed it and built it. And the corollary to that is that Job doesn't have any of that knowledge because he was not involved in the world's design or building. Verse 8 through 11. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and I set a bolt in doors and I said, thus far you shall come but no farther and here shall your proud waves stop. God is talking about, again, there's a metaphor here, talking about that he's the one that set a boundary for the waters. Literally, we know that he determined where the water would be on the earth. We see this in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. But there also could be a kind of another layer of meaning because oftentimes in Scripture, water is seen as a figure for judgment or some great ordeal that someone undergoes. 
And so whether God is talking about literal H2O or some other kind of water of judgment or ordeal, in either case, God is the one that has said, this is as far as you come. You don't go any further than that. And obviously we realize that Job plays no part in that. Job has nothing to do with the boundary of the waters. Verse 12 through 15. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might uh, take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. And from the wicked their light is withheld, and the broken arm, the uplifted arm, is broken. So once again, has Job ever commanded the morning or caused the dawn to know its place? Of course not. But of course, God does this every day. Each and every day, God, as it were, causes the dawn to break. And I think what God is getting at is he doesn't just do this one time, he does it repeatedly. I mean, even from our perspective, the sun only rises one time per day because we're in one geographic location. But realize throughout one 24-hour period, dawn is breaking somewhere on the earth all the time. People are waking up. Their alarm clocks go off all the time on the earth. God is saying that he is the one causing this to happen. And of course, you could also say it's not so much about the sun rising, but it's God is the one that continues the earth rotating on its axis. God is the one that is making this to continue to occur hour by hour, daybreak by daybreak, and he's been doing this since time began. It almost seems silly to ask, does Job have any part of this? Of course not. Verse 19, I'm sorry, 16 through 18. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Once again, if you're thinking in kind of in Job's perspective, it's like I'm not going to do very well in this battle, am I? Because God is asking Job, have you been to the recesses of the deep? Job, have you walked on the ocean floor? Well, I'm tempted to ask, well, has God? Has God walked on the ocean floor, as it were? I don't know, but we know that Job hasn't. Has Job visited the underworld, the place of the dead? No. And that's God's point. If Job has not traveled to these places, then he cannot possibly have a comprehensive view, comprehensive knowledge of the world. 19 through 21. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory and you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. This seems to be even more abstract. The dwelling of light. I don't know what that is. I don't think any of us do. But that's the point. God does know the dwelling of light. Job can't know. It does seem that God gets a bit sarcastic in verse 21. Saying, Job, Job, you know, you were born then. The number of your days is great. It seems he is being sarcastic. 
But that's the point. There's no way that Job can know these things. Only God does. Verse 22 through 30. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where is the way that the light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood, or a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. These might remind us a bit of Elihu's words in chapter 37. If you recall, Elihu was recounting God's glory as displayed in meteorology. It seems that God is also quite taken with meteorology. Talks about storehouses of snow and hail, wind, rain, lightning, dew, ice, frost. God seems to enjoy all the varieties of precipitation that he's created. Interestingly, let's think more carefully about verses 25 through 27, or 26 and 27. Because God talks about bringing rain on a land without people. And it's worth noting that throughout these speeches in chapter 38 through 41, God hardly even mentions people. In chapter 38 and 39, he's looking at the inanimate world and the world of animals. And next week we'll see he's focusing in on two particular animals again in chapter 40 and 41. But people are almost entirely absent from what God is saying here. And it almost looks like people show up in verse 26 and 27, but actually the point he's making is he's talking about a place where there aren't any people. He's talking about a desert, some uninhabited wasteland. And what is happening in this uninhabited wasteland? He says rain is falling. And we may say, well, so what? Well, I think this is getting at one of those pieces of knowledge that Job is lacking. I think God is trying to tell Job that the world, the cosmos, is not fundamentally about you. Do you ever think about that? All the things that God has created, they're not fundamentally about me or you. It's not even for us necessarily. Now, yes, it is for us in the sense that God has graciously given us the earth and so many wonderful things. But if the world was entirely about mankind and only for his benefit, then I think what God is saying here is that it would only ever rain on places where it benefited man on his cultivated fields and settlements. What good does it do to any of us that even right now, somewhere in the world, some far-off, desolate place where nobody lives, it could be pouring down rain? What good does that do for us? Nothing. And again, we might say, "Uh, I still don't see the point. Well, how many times have we had thoughts like this when we're in a time of drought here in North Texas Somewhere else in the United States has been so wet and they're flooding. And we think, man, I sure would like to get some of that rain here. They don't need it there. 
we could use it here. Or vice versa. All of our yards are so soggy and we're sick of the mud and those other places we know of that have no rain at all. We say, man, I'd like to not have all this rain. I wish it would go rain over there so we could dry out. I think this is oftentimes the way we think. And rain is just one example. That whatever God is doing in the world should be benefiting me. God is saying, this is not the way that I've ordered the world. I cause things to happen in ways and for purposes that aren't about Job. They're not about you. God's design is not so laser beam focused on us. He's structured and he maintains the world in ways and for purposes that are beyond us. Verse 31 through 33. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Now God would have Job rise above the rain clouds all the way into outer space. He wants Job to think about the stars. Now, I am no amateur astronomer. Some of you might be, so I'm not real comfortable here. But God refers to at least three constellations that we're aware of, the Pleiades, Orion, and the bear. Anyone? The bear also known as Ursa Major, which is also the Big Dipper. Did you know the Big Dipper was in the Bible? Here it is, right here. Why is God drawing Job's attention to this? Well, I should maybe briefly say, maybe this doesn't need to be said, but if you have the ESV in verse 32, or even the King James, um, where my New American Standard said constellation, you might have this word that says Maseroth. Anyone? Okay. And you're like, what in the world is this? Well, apparently this Hebrew word basically means something like a shining something, something that shines. So it could be a planet, could be star, constellation. Interestingly, interestingly, the Latin Vulgate translated that as Lucifer, shining one, but that Lucifer is also apparently a name for Venus, one of our planets. But in any event, he's drawing Job's attention to things that are up in the sky, And the argument that God is making, I think, is still moving along the same track that he's already been saying, and that, Job, you cannot guide the constellations, you can't guide the planets to their places. And I think it goes actually a step beyond that, because in Job's society, in the day and age in which he lived, an agrarian society where farming was what most people did, if you think about it, the way the stars moved in the sky corresponded to the seasons that changed throughout the year. And so they actually kind of understood what's happening in the sky is determining what I'm doing down here on earth. Because as the seasons are changing and the stars up above are move, you know, seemingly moving, it's the earth that's moving, but um, seems to determine what people do, the different seasons. Sometimes they plow, sometimes they plant, sometimes they um, reap and harvest 
So that in some way, that's why I think it says in verse 33, talking about the heavens fixing their rule over the earth, as if the stars are determining what people are doing on the earth. And in an agrarian society, in some way, I think that's how they saw it. And so it could be that God is going beyond the stars themselves and asking Job, Job, are you in charge of time? Are you even in charge of what dictates the way that man spends his time on the earth? Answer, anyone? No. No. Job does not do these things. I'm actually going to skip verses 34 through 38. I feel bad saying this, but it's more of the same. It's important and good, but God continues to just make this case that there's things that God knows that Job doesn't know. Um, Because we need to have adequate time for chapter 39. So how is Job doing in this battle? I mean, he hasn't said anything yet. But mentally, if you were Job, you know, how are you feeling right now? I mean, I, yeah. Um, so God is going to continue to press this battle of words, but he's going to change the scene. He's going to move from the way he's created and maintained the world, now moving to the world of animals. As I promised last week, here comes our lesson in zoology. He's going to give portraits of nine different animals. And in each of these portraits, God is, is going to teach something about the animal itself. And we shouldn't be surprised. But he's going to teach us something about God himself and also about Job. Um, so, and this actually begins at the end of chapter 38. The chapter break doesn't seem like it's in the best place, but... So, chapter 38, verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? So, first and second, the lion and the raven. Now, these are very different creatures. Why has God put them together? This kind of portrait has two animals in one. Well, I think he's highlighting a difference in the way that these animals procure their food. Okay? Now, we know the lion is an apex predator. He or she, we know it's actually the lioness that does the hunting. She goes out and she stalks, eventually killing, actively killing its prey. But the raven, on the other hand, is really like a vulture. It's a bird that feeds on a dead carcass. So in the raven's case, it has to wait for something to die. It doesn't actively go out and kill anything. I think that's why verse 41 is saying it's young, the raven's young. They cry to God, wandering about without food. They've got to wait for something to die. And so what is God's point? Well, I think he's saying that whether we're talking about the lion or the raven, in either case, God is the one ordaining where their next meal comes from. And in fact, each of their next meal might come from the same place. Because the gazelle or wildebeest that the lion kills might also be the thing that the raven gets to dine on as well. 
This is just part of the world, the way that God has intricately woven the world together. Um, God maintains the world with a level of care and intricacy that Job doesn't understand. I think that's the point here. Chapter 39, verse 1 through 4. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time that they give birth? They kneel down, they bring forth their young. They get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring becomes strong. They grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return to them. So, the mountain goat, and I think the word deer is still actually referring to the same kind of animal. So, we're just going to say this is one animal, the mountain goat. Now, the portrait that God is painting here is not about their diet, but it's about their reproductive habits, the gestation of mountain goats. Now we know, or perhaps some of us know, that goats are indeed notoriously fertile animals. Um, God says that even though that's the case, God knows the time when the mountain goat will give birth. So whereas with the lion and the raven, I think God is making a point about the order of his knowledge, now I think God is making a point about the vast quantity of his knowledge. I mean, how many goats are there in the world today? According to (laughs) goatworld.com, there's 450 million mountain goats in the world today. God says he knows the time that each of those she-goats is going to give birth. I mean, we can't really cope with that kind of knowledge. And we're just talking goats here. Multiply that by all of the created world, And how vast is God's knowledge? Well, I mean, we know that God knows everything. We know that. But when you start to try to quantify it, it just is staggering. I think that's what God is saying. His knowledge is vast. The quantity of God's knowledge is beyond Job's comprehension. It's beyond our comprehension. Verse 5 through 8. Who set the wild donkey free? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I gave the wilderness for, <clears throat> excuse me, to whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for its dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and he searches after every green thing. So now the wild donkey. And we might normally think of the donkey as a domesticated animal because it's always a donkey next to the manger in the nativity scene, right? Um, But there's actually another species or some relative, I'm sure, of the domesticated donkey. There's a wild donkey that exists today in, um, I don't want to get this wrong, where does he live? Asia, the Middle East, something that Joe would have known about. And the point is this wild donkey is notoriously untamable. You're not going to tame him. I think God's point is that a wild donkey loves his freedom. He doesn't want anything to do with the city. He wants to be out on a mountain somewhere far away from where someone might try to put a cart on him. And so the question, was it Job that set this wild donkey free? No, of course not. And I think God is also saying that even 
though this creature cannot be tamed by man, it's entirely within God's control. It's entirely within God's control. Verse 9 through 12. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? The wild ox. Now again, we might think of the ox as a farm animal, an animal that's put under a yoke to carry the plow or the ox cart. But there is, again, a wild version of this animal, a wild ox, or the auroch, A-U-R-O-C-H, or at least there was. Apparently, this animal was massive, six foot tall at the shoulders, 1,500 pounds, ranged throughout Africa, Asia, and Europe, and its strength and size made it very attractive to be hunted, especially on royal hunts. The wild ox is actually a favorite to be hunted, even in the courts of Pharaoh in ancient Egypt. And in fact, it was hunted to extinction, the last wild ox apparently dying in a forest in Poland in 1627. So there's no wild ox for us to look at today that's alive. But Job would have known what a wild ox was. And the thing that's highlighted here, God is highlighting the wild ox's strength. Can Job bind it with ropes? Can he use it as a plow animal? Will this animal spend the night in Job's stable? But what does this portrait say about God? Well, it's easy enough. Even this wild ox's amazing strength is still well under the level of God's power. God is far stronger than even this mighty beast. Verse 13 through 18. The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of love. For she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust. And she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and rider. The ostrich, next on the list. What seems to be the focus of God's portrait of the ostrich? Well, at first glance, it might seem to be the ostrich's stupidity. And I think we oftentimes think of ostriches as dumb animals. Um, When you think of an ostrich, you probably have the image of your mind of it sticking its head in the sand, right? Well, God will address that. Um... But I think that God is not so much saying that it's, he's not trying to teach a lesson about how dumb it might be, but it's kind of this paradox of an animal. It's a bird, but it can't fly. So it can't put its nest in the tree, so it buries its eggs under the ground, which leaves them very vulnerable to someone, you know, trampling them. But she doesn't seem to mind. God seems to highlight the fact that the, she seems to be almost a neglectful mother, not really caring what happens to her eggs. 
And in fact, it is because she puts her eggs in the ground that there is that myth that the, that the ostrich buries its head in the sand. It doesn't actually do that when it's afraid. It's only digging a hole, taking care of the eggs. So even though it's this neglectful mother that leaves her eggs exposed, well, the species seems to thrive just the same. All these contrasts, what a strange creature. Finally, he says that she can actually laugh at the horse and its rider. Well, how can this ridiculous bird laugh at the majestic horse? Well, it's because she can actually outrun him. The ostrich is the second fastest land animal on earth. Only the cheetah is faster. So as she's laughing at the horse, she's looking behind her because the horse can't keep up. So what's God's point? I think God's point is it's his prerogative to have made an animal like this. And he doesn't know it, owe anyone an explanation for it. He seems to actually say explicitly that it's God that made this animal forget wisdom. God made it to be dumb. But he's not apologizing for it either. He doesn't need to. This animal of contrasts, it's God's prerogative to make her just the way she is, just the way he wants her, not the way that you and I would design an animal probably, but it's God's prerogative. And the animal that she can laugh at is the next one on the list, the horse, verse 19 through 25. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and the javelin. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground, and he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he scents the battle from afar, and the thunder of the captains, and the war cry. So this is not just a horse, it's a war horse. A horse used in battle. And it might be interesting to us that now, kind of out of nowhere, God inserts an animal that is domesticated. Because all the other animals in this um, parade of animals are wild animals that really don't even seem to serve a purpose for man. But now the war horse shows up, which is very useful for man. And why is he useful? Well, because he seems to be this amazing creature that's not afraid of the battle. In fact, he seems to enjoy it. This tumult and terrifying thing that's happening around him, he seems to enjoy it. Shaking in rage, he races over the ground. He doesn't turn back from the sword. And I think the point God is making is, Job, did you make the horse this way? No. Now, even though, obviously, the horse was domesticated and put into good use by man, ultimately, it was God that designed the horse to be able to do those things. God is ultimately responsible for the horse's temperament and the way that he can be used in this way. So, once again, I think God is just highlighting this vast variety of the way that he's ordered creation just the way he sees fit. One more animal portrait, or two more. We end with the hawk and the eagle, verse 26 through 30. 
Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the cliff he dwells and lodges, upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food, his eye sees it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. So the hawk and the eagle. Now apparently the Hebrew word that's rendered eagle here is actually also the same that we could use for vulture. And that'll make more sense. So the hawk and the vulture, basically. Um, So what is God asking Job? Well, they could be asking him a couple of different things by his question, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? It could be, um, did you teach the hawk to fly? Or, perhaps asking the question that stymied man until the early 20th century, do you understand the principles of flight? Do you understand what it is that makes the hawk able to fly? Of course not. Job does not understand these things. He asks Job, that Job, do you command where the eagle goes and makes its nest high on a cliff somewhere? Again, no. We know it's only God that appoints these animals to go where they go and do what they do. Job is not responsible for this. But verse 30, the way this kind of carnival of the animals concludes is kind of disturbing. Talking about young vultures. His young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. So here at the very end, it appears that perhaps people show up again. Well, only kind of because it's dead people. Because this concludes on a field of battle where there are corpses that are littering the field. Why is God bringing this into the picture? Because he's making a point that these young eagles are sucking up these dead soldiers' blood. It's not a pretty picture. Why is he emphasizing this? Well, I think really two, two reasons. I think God is reemphasizing what he said about the point he made about why he sends rain to parts of the earth where there aren't even any people at all. And he's also kind of circling back to where this carnival of the animals began, talking about the raven, which is also like a vulture. But this is disturbing, I think. Because I think God is saying that the way in which he provides food for some of his animal kingdom is to bring about the death of some people. The way that God provides food for some of his animal kingdom is to bring about the death of some people. Now, that's not a thought that we're probably very comfortable with. Now, we can't press it too far and say that these soldiers died for the express purpose of feeding these little birds. We're not going to say that these um, soldiers died for the sake of the birds. But still, somehow, I think God is saying, contained within his purposes, contained within the way he has designed the world, even a soldier's death or his dead body might serve a purpose for which we would have never ordained it. It would not be my plan to serve up dead soldiers to birds. That's not the way that I would order the world, probably. But this is part of the way that God has ordered the world. 
And as I said, I think it's the same lesson of sending rain to an uninhabited place, reinforcing to Job that the world is not all about man. It's not all about Job. Job needs to know that I think, as I said last week, his thoughts of God are oftentimes too small. Or the opposite of that, this goes for me too, the thoughts that we have of ourselves are often too large. I mean, isn't it true throughout the entire dialogue, Job seems pretty focused on himself, what he's lost, his sorrow, his pain. And we understand that. It's real sorrow. It's real pain. Any of us that have experienced loss or pain know that it's, it's terrible. I mean, pain is real. But it does seem that God is trying to point Job to look at something bigger than himself. And illustrating it by describing the way that these little birds are provided for. Think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Think of the birds, the way that, you know, God cares for them. Well, none of us would have thought that one of the means that God uses to care for them is that a soldier would die. But that's the way that God has ordered the world. So, is this the kind of response from God that Job was hoping for? Probably not. Job, as I said, was wanting a fight. He was wanting to be shown to be in the right because he's been claiming this whole time that God is treating him unjustly for the suffering that he's enduring. But these are probably not the answers that Job was looking for. And as I said, we might even ask the question, were these things that God is saying even relevant to Job's case? So let's think back to the few questions that I suggested we should think about as we were reading through this. All of these questions God have asked, what do they have to do with Job's suffering? Well, I think the honest answer is nothing. God has effectively ignored Job's suffering. What do these questions have to do with Job's demand for vindication? Well, again, I think God ignores it. He's not saying anything about Job really... Um, being vindicated or not. He's not addressing this demand of Job's, but we'll, touch, we'll talk about this more next week. But notice that God is also not calling Job's moral integrity into question either. He said nothing about the possibility that Job might have been sinning in what he's been saying. He hasn't said anything like that. Just keep that in mind for next week. The next question, do these questions have anything to do with justice? Which, it, which is what it is that Job has been seeking. Well, no, they don't. God has not said anything about justice. He's been giving us all these pictures of the natural world, all these animals, the stars, rain, thunder, so many things God is telling Job about the natural, the created order of the world. He said nothing to Job about the moral order of the world. It would seem that God is just leaving it to Job to make, kind of make a connection between what he's saying about the natural order and what God might also be saying about the moral order. And we'll have to return to that also next week. And then what about the tone? Does it seem like God is being very gracious or kind to Job? Well, I don't think it's a trick question. It doesn't seem like it. 
does it? It doesn't seem like God is being very gracious or kind to Job at this point. Now, he's not condemning Job. I wouldn't classify his response as condemnatory at all. Um, but I would classify it as severe. And if you also, also think about throughout the entire dialogue, there were many times that the things that Job's friends were saying, I would call them out for not being very compassionate. They didn't seem like they were really listening to their friend Job. Well, could we say the same things here about God? Does God seem to be very compassionate right now? Does it seem like God has really been listening to Job's complaint? It doesn't seem like it. Now, I can't tell you why it seems that way, but it just doesn't seem like he's being very compassionate. Now, we're not going to chastise God for this, but this is God's prerogative. This is the way he chooses to answer Job. And we realize his answer is not finished. There's still more to come. But let's briefly look at the way that Job responds. Just five verses, the first five verses of chapter 40. So then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add no more. So, very quickly, what is Job saying, and what is Job not saying? Now we know that Job is in maintaining his innocence throughout this entire ordeal, maintaining his integrity, saying that he has not sinned in any way in order to bring about what's happened to him. Now, is Job now relinquishing this claim of innocence? Is he relinquishing, is he withdrawing the case he's bringing against God? No, he's not. He's not. Now, he, he admits that he's small, he's insignificant compared to God. We know that's obviously true. But really, all he says is, I'm not going to add anything else. He puts his hand over his mouth. He's not adding anything to his case but he's not subtracting anything either. He's effectively saying, I've said it once, even twice. That idiom could be uh, perhaps said, yeah, if I've said it once, God, I've said it a thousand times. I think Job is staying where he is, which is a pretty brave thing for Job to do at this point. He's certainly not repenting for anything. There's nothing at all that could be seen as repentance here. He's staying his course. He's not admitting defeat. And as a result, the case has to continue. The trial is not over, but we have to go into recess. So a week from now, we'll reconvene, and we'll see, see the closing arguments and see what the final verdict might be. So let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your word and for the way it challenges us. Um, you present to us some unexpected things. Um, but that's good for us. So, Lord, teach us um, that you are the creator. You're, we are your creatures. And it's your prerogative to do with your world as you see fit. Um, and, of course, there's so many things we know about your character from elsewhere in Scripture. This is just one little part. Um, but, Lord, I pray you continue um, to teach us by this. Um, help us learn from this um, as we finish this book next week. Uh, we pray that you would do this for Jesus' sake. 
Amen. And we're dismissed.